Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Kitetse, which covers Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10 through 25, 19, some of these really big ideas. And these particular ideas cover the bucket terms of murder, adultery, theft, honesty, and lust for people and stuff. That's really a good way you can describe all of what we're taking a look at today and covers the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments and uh, elaborates upon all of them. So one of the things that we, we look at in this, so we continue on in this section and are coming to an end, or we'll have one more Torah passage, which will take a look at the exposition of the Ten Commandments, which started in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and it's going to go through mid part of chapter 26. So this continues on with um, Moshe's sermon, his sermon, his exhortation to the second generation getting ready to go into the land remember what happened to the first generation your parents remember what happened to them why they're not going into the land so now that word that they heard those 10 words those 10 statements of who the lord was that they heard at sinai remember what was behind that when you go into the land because you are now taking up the vanguard to go into into the land. Yes, uh, Alex, you have a comment or a question right off the bat. You know, this is radical stuff that uh, Yahweh's introducing. Yes, indeed. I mean, we were all about serving the king before, whoever that might have been, or Pharaoh, and he's wanting us to look after the poor and everything. And I always was a little troubled about, but why is he killing anybody who's doing false gods? Well, had to be. It never would have worked. Because you cannot share your false god, then everything else goes away. So, if they're, you know, done. Only one god. And yes. He, you know, it, it seems a little cruel, but had to do it. Or we would not be here today. As yes. followers of the way. That's, that's the bottom line. It wouldn't have worked. Yeah, and indeed, we often used the illustration before of uh, when you're doing life-saving and someone drowning, that... Um, you have to protect the life saver because if you do not protect the life saver, then the whole, everybody dies. Everybody dies. That's why like you're on a plane and they tell you, make sure you put your own oxygen mask on first. So then you can put the mask on those that really can't put their own masks on because if you pass out, then who's going to put their masks on? So in a sense, what you see with the uh, coming into the land is you see Israel coming in with the oxygen mask on because the oxygen is getting sucked out of the promised land and they are there to actually save and put the oxygen mask of heaven on to those that would otherwise suffocate without really that life um, that is poured out upon the wicked and the good the same way. But eventually, that's 
quote, oxygen will get sucked out of the room, so to speak. And thus, you know, they'll be have to have the reboot happen to all the land for the sake of everybody, for the sake of everybody surviving. So, yes, I, that, that's a great observation as we kick off because that, that really is a good undercurrent of all of the, what we take a look in this passage of Kitetse. And when we look at the uh, Ten Commandments, number six about uh, murder, it's really more general than that because murder is to specifically with um, some sort of either malice or apathy, negligence, etc., the person dies because of it. And also with being loyal, loyalty in the sense of adultery. Adultery is more than just what you would say within a particular marriage relationship because it is those bonds and relationships that you have on a wider scale. And we'll take a look at that in the relation between heaven and earth and God and his people and also with God and everybody on earth through God's people to enlarge the tent, so to speak. And also about sticking with your own stuff. We call that um, theft or stealing. And also about being trustworthy, about, you know, when you talk about um, bearing false witness against someone else. So are you someone who's trustworthy? And also to really be content, which is underlying the 10th commandment about coveting. Coveting is more than just saying, you know, I want your stuff. It is like, well, where does that come from inside yourself that you say, oh, I really want his stuff, his relationships, his life, because I'm not content with my own life. So with this, we're going to be taking a look at, uh, in particular here today, uh, on to the, the seventh commandment about being loyal, about not being adulterous or taking your relationships. When we when, when use the term adulterating, you know, in English, it just means to take something that is pure and then mix something into it. To take something that is pure and um, add something to it so it is no longer the good thing that it started out with. So, as we say, it's adulterated. Like when you have something where you're making a pure metal, like gold or something like that, you take, you take the impurities out of it. So, you are... <laughs> you know, you you are we call it refining, but it could also be saying de-adulterizing it. You're taking that which adulterized it, and you're taking those elements out of it. So, in this sense, we're taking a lot, in particular, the things that belong together and the things that don't, because you might remember some instructions about being unequally yoked, and that applies to what marriage, and also relationships, partnerships. If you are having 
friendships with other people. Be careful about who you're associating with. So all those things about the things that belong together and the things that don't. And also about, in particular, these marriage violations. So you have a, a covenant, a, a part, and a bond between people, and then you are coming in the midst of that to blow it up and to make that less strong than it was before. And then also about the purity of the camp. And that is kind of curious when you, when you take a look at that. So this is like going out into battle is what it particularly talks about. And when you're going out into battle, you are to remember who you are. Remember who you are and what you're fighting about. So that in your camp, even when you're out there destroying things, and breaking down walls, etc. Remember why you're doing this. You're not animals. So don't live like animals, even down to where you uh, deal with your uh, bodily uh, functions. Remember you're not animals. So this is really coming down into um, pretty close... <laughs> Close, uh, a closer look here about the things that are happy together and the things that are not. And there's this illustration here about you know, when you see your countryman's ox or his donkey, and this is there in Deuteronomy chapter 22. So this is where this in particular is looking at. So if you see the ox and the donkey, it's lost or it's fallen down. What do you do? This is now and expounding upon the golden rule the do unto others as you would want them to do unto you so otherwise known as the second greatest commandment so thus when you're talking about the greatest commandment which is the shema in deuteronomy 6 hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your strength and part of that heart is your mind. So your emotions, your reason, everything is going together into loving the Lord. So thus you see the parallel that we saw earlier in Exodus 23. You know, if you meet in your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. So there is sometimes this caricature that you see, well, there's all this stuff about being good to your own countrymen, but then Yeshua came along and overturned the whole apple cart of the Torah and made this about loving your enemies. No, loving your enemies is here. So thus, you know, we'll get to it in just a bit. Well, some people will say in the Sermon on the Mount, there and found in Matthew chapter five through seven, one of those great six antitheses which is the term that's used for you have a thesis which is in the torah but then he says you have heard that it was said but i tell you so the antithesis is what yeshua is telling and that supposedly by a common teaching that is out there will say well yeshua came in and just blew up whatever the torah said about this and so there's just lots of holes then that 
Yeshua supposedly blew into the Torah to now stitch over something new and different that wasn't there before, to make it more about what was going on in the heart and not about what was the letter, so to speak, which was all the Torah was. That is what the assertion or the assertion is with these six antitheses teaching that you'll sometimes see taken various approaches related to Yeshua's Sermon on the Mount. Because you can see right here in Exodus 23, verses 4 through 5, where you have the corollary to what we're seeing there in Deuteronomy 2, verses 1 and 4, about the ox and the donkey. And if you're a countryman, well, this is even if your enemy, someone you hate, has lost something. Or if something that your enemy has has fallen down, what do you do? You go, ha, 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 ha. You know, do maybe a, a meme. You take a picture of it and just put in giant letters or fail and post it and just laugh. No. What do you do? You inconvenience yourself and help. Why? Because what would you like to have happen? Would you like to be like, Fallen down there, or you know, your equivalent to your ox or your donkey, which today would be what your car. You're broken down on the side of the road, and someone you don't like it just goes by there, click, 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 and then you see yourself posted there on, on whatever with just fail over it. No, we wouldn't want that to happen. So we don't do that to other people. And where does that come out of? It comes out of a change in your heart. So you're not looking to, you know, own your enemy to just get something over on him so that what? You make yourself look bigger to other people or even to yourself. Make yourself think that you're bigger than somebody else. So this is all talking about with loyalty. So going on further, you'll see some clarifications um, about the duty of this bridge builder, someone who is reconciling, building bridges, mending fences, things that relationships between people that have just fallen down, gone into disrepair, to reconcile between people. Some examples of this uh, come from uh, Yeshua's teachings, and one of which, you know, was from the, the Beatitudes, the Blessed are you. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And, and we talked about this long ago when we went through the series on the Sermon on the Mount. You can still find there on the website. One of the things we talked about with the Beatitudes is that the equivalent from the Psalms is ashray. And ashray means happy are you. So if you would... You could easily do this because the corollary is in the Psalms to in the Beatitudes say, happy are you if you do this. Happy are you if you do this. Happy are you. So happy are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. So it's not just blessed. Oh, I'm going to get something out of it. No, you are happy. You are content within your core. You are actually feel better about this because of what you're doing and then going on further is a passage here uh, further on into the sermon on the mount 
You've heard it said, you shall, love your en- you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you than doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And as we've talked about, when you see the same word that's used in the first chapter of uh, the Apostle Yaakov's letter, a.k.a. James, so James chapter 1, you see that you'll be perfect, not lacking anything. So if you were to take that word back into where you see it in the Tanakh or the Hebrew scriptures, it would be the word tamim. And one of those ways that it is used is like with an offering. You are to bring a perfect offering, a whole unblemished offering. So you are unblemished. There is no blemish that's found in you, something that is like, eh, that's not really acceptable to bring in here. So just as there is nothing found. Oh, yes, uh, Alex, please go ahead, please. The Hebrew, because we know Yeshua is actually speaking in Aramaic to them, which is closer to Hebrew than Greek, and it was eventually written in Greek. So it's nice to, it's not quite as black and white as we'd like to see. Yeah, uh, that, that's, his, that's one thing that uh, is definitely up, up for debate in scholarly circles about the primacy of, of the language, because, uh, you know, the finding the original uh, Hebrew or even Aramaic versions uh, that do, that predate the Greek versions is difficult, hasn't been done yet. I know people are looking, but it hasn't been done yet. So the jury is still out on that one. So looking on further here about <laughs> how do we respond to the mob when the mob demands that we raise our fists and support whatever unrighteous cause that's out there is an admonition here from Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21 here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved. But leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy 32:35, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a quotation from Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's quite different from 
you could say the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age right now. The spirit of the age is about what? There is oppression, systematic oppression, and you must rebel, resist against it in all quarters. Break down the structures of the society, for out of the broken structures of society, you will get something better. That's what the hope is. But the problem is, is we've had some historical examples of such things throughout history. A key one, which is very closely related to the history of this country, the United States of America, is the French Revolution. That is the approach they took. They took the approach, we'll break down the structures of our society. In that case, it was the aristocracy. There was the, the, the ruling kings, the intelligentsia, those who had the learned places of power. And they broke them. And when they started breaking them, they started breaking more of them. And it was like, as it came to be known, as <laughs> the reign of terror. Because it was a tsunami that just rolled through French society. Started with the aristocracy, started with the king. And then just, it started going after anybody and everybody that they didn't like. And they, their list of people they didn't like just kept getting longer and longer and longer. Until eventually, it even included the people who started the revolution. And one of the founders ended up at the guillotine himself. So, how did that come to an end? We know him as Napoleon. They cried out, somebody make this stop. Oh, he made it stop all right. Yeah. And then brought down the wrath of Europe upon the heads of France when he decided to go out and try to conquer the entire world and uh, ended up destroying France in the, in the process. But it's one of those things that be careful what you start thinking that you're going to do some great good by just kicking at the pillars around until you know what those pillars are for. Because, you know, if you go into construction or anything like that, you just start getting out your old, uh, you know, reciprocating saw and just sawing down whatever wall you see. Hey, I, I, want, a, I want a hole in this wall. I'm just going to start taking out, taking out these, uh, these supports here. Because I just want them. I want to have an open floor plan in my house. Well, the problem is, is that might be a load-bearing wall that you just sawed through because you just didn't like it there. It was obstructing your view. You, you wanted to have more space. And what happens then if you start taking out those load-bearing walls? You may also have your house come down. Yes. Yeah, especially if you start taking the outer <laughs> load-bearing walls and taking some of those down and doing some dastardly things there. Oh, yeah, look out. Look out. So there's all kinds of great illustrations that we can get from building a house, including one of which is, is actually in our Torah portion here today. About the talks about the parapet around your house because... In the in the in the the way that homes were constructed, and you could still see them there today, is it's a humid, hot climate. So at night, what would they do? 
sleep on the roof. So the houses were typically built to facilitate that you would be spending time on the roof. And there would be a lot of people up there on the roof. So what did they do to their roofs? Reinforce them so they just didn't fall through all the time. And then if you got people up on the roof, what can happen with people going around on the roof? Fall off. Yeah, it's, it's one, of those, one of those things even with construction sites today. They, you'll see them putting up barriers around roofs and, and uh, scaffolding and stuff like that. For what reason? To keep people from falling off. And some people are more prone to fall off of roofs and such than others. I know I could put myself in that category because when I was uh, <laughs> spent one summer uh, helping my stepfather, they're uh, putting trusses on top of on top of a house, and I am terribly afraid of heights. So you know, walking along a a wall on the top of a wall like forty feet up was a bit harrowing. So that was one of those things of having some sort of support to keep you from going off or something that you could have a limit to know, hey, you're not going to go fall off the edge of it. That's only what? You're looking out for the health and benefit of somebody else by putting something up there to say, hey, be careful. And it's like <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that it, it can work in a couple of different directions in that way. One of the things that um, somebody noticed at a, um, a Native American um, outlook over the Grand Canyon is that someone went to, went to this outlook and they said, where are the fences? Because you know, when you go over to the National Park Service, they got fences and signs and this and that and the other, so you can't get anywhere close to the edge unless you work really hard. Well, where are your fences and such? And he says, well, the fence is a crutch and you may not realize the danger that's here. Now, the problem though is, is that you would think you would get instilled into you the idea if there is a drop-off, be careful. But no, some people don't even realize the danger. And sadly, you have the aspects today of where the, you know, the selfie deaths are just rampant all over the globe of people falling down. And sadly, there was even one here recently where there was a selfie death and it wasn't even the person who was taking the selfie. It was some kid was trying to get out of the way of someone who was taking a selfie near a cliff and then went over the cliff. So... It's just one of those things that this here, this kid was trying to be good and stay out of someone's way and then ended up going right over because someone wasn't paying attention to what it is that they were doing themselves. So, yes, that's one of the key things about, about the Torah. You know, you'll get the caricature that's often made of the Torah is that this is just nothing but backward people trying to oppress other people by all these rules. But then you start seeing these inconsistencies with that view and these aspects that you're, you're saying about how you treat other people is starting to tell you that that is that caricature or that um, you could, 
a straw man that is put up that critics are beating down by saying, oh, it's just this barbaric, backward view of these uh, sun-stroked goat herders wandering around the desert, that that doesn't seem to be in line with reality of what is actually uh, written in the word. So going on further to something that is a big deal today, and that's Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5, which says, A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, before we go on further, just to take a little look at things that are happening under the hood in the Hebrew that's happening here, just to, some key aspects of this. First of all, the and this is the New American Standard uh, version that is what I just read from. So woman is Isha. So you might know that's from a man, a typical, a common word for man is Ish, and this is Isha. But strangely enough, linguistically, it's not easy to say that one came from the other, even though when you see in Genesis, it says that she's called Isha because she came out of man. But linguistically, they're not really related to each other, which is kind of curious, but that's a whole side topic of digging into the lexicons of a long discussion of where these Ish for man and Isha for woman came from. <laughs> but needless to say, it is the, the word that is used here is Isha for woman. Now, man's clothing is Khalil Geber. And just to break that down a little bit further, you have Geber is literally means strong man, or in other words, a warrior. And that comes from the verb Gabar, which means to be strong and mighty. You might remember one of the names of God is El Gibor. El Gibor, or Mighty God is another way that that's translated. Now, El Shaddai, that we say translated as God Almighty, that's another way to put this. But uh, Shaddai, as we talked about with Bilam, that is a term, a Semitic term for destroyer or the one who makes things like a parking lot. <laughs> he, turns, he turns mountains into parking lots. Uh, that's, that's a way to say Shaddai. Now, uh, Gibor is just too mighty, powerful. So a Geber is a mighty man, strong man, or in other words, a warrior. So that this term that's uh, is Khalil in this in this usage of Kali is a vessel or a utensil or a weapon. It is. Something that gets things done, and that comes from the verb of kala, which means to be complete, to be at an end, finished. In other words, it gets it done. That's what it means. It is an implement, something. So you have the strong man's implement, the warrior's implement. In other words, a weapon. That's how this, these two terms used together of, of uh, khali, Geber used together is for weapon. So woman's clothing, on the other hand, is the simlat isha. So isha again for woman. So simlat, or the, or the 
the that's the genitive for which means that possession of so the the form that you would see the noun of it is uh the simbla and simbla means garments clothes basically cloth something that is cloth like a blanket or something like that or dress or whatnot something's fabric so you see that there's a big difference in what's being talked about here you have a utensil tool of a mighty man or a warrior so what do warriors use weapons that's their main tool their main toolbox i guess you could call it assortment of weapons are their tools versus what you're talking about here is some sort of cloth related item that women have so women's cloths women's and that's where we get the term in english clothes from because what it is cloths so clothes so thus you're saying a woman should not be and it's uh haya so strictly speaking this is saying a woman should not become a weapon should not become a man's weapon and a man should not a mighty man a warrior should not be putting on dresses fabric he's equipped for war he's a warrior don't be putting on the clothes that is not of a warrior okay so that's what's happening underneath the hood so let's take a look at some various views that have been over hundreds and hundreds of years of looking at this particular passage now going back to some jewish commentators from hundreds of years ago starting first with rashi so one of the his long discussion on this particular topic is basically so um men the the idea is is that what's the issue is that a woman is trying to dress like a mighty man to become a mighty man's weapon or a mighty man is putting on a woman's clothes is for surreptitious or as you would say inappropriately secret purposes so to, to be around women or for women to be around men that was the idea but interestingly enough and you'll see this as a common theme throughout various jewish commentators is that they're saying that strictly speaking the torah is not talking about just cross-dressing but this is cross-dressing with a a a a very evil intent is to work its way into something and that is something that has become an issue today in fact there was just it seems like pretty much every day now you're starting to hear of these sorts of things as to where there was a um there was a man wearing women's clothing who was a coach for a team went into the girls locker room and was changing along with the girls there so this fits in exactly for what they were saying of the situation that someone should not be trying to put on women's clothes to be in the area to be amongst women and uh it 
Arabanel, who is one of those commentators who's not often quoted much, but if you look in his commentaries, he has a lot of like thought questions at the beginning of each Torah section, which are really quite interesting when you, if you ever look up of Arabanel's uh, um, questions, because they're like really like, huh, I never really thought of those sorts of questions. So when you're going through a Torah section, they're really good to ask. But he brings up, uh, he goes along with Rashi in this case. But he says, obviously, it is not the apparel that is the problem, but the sexual misbehavior it would lead to. So that was one of the key issues there. Now, Ibn Ezra, which is on a later time period, and you can guess by his name, he came from an area that was, uh, at that point in history, under Muslim control, which is why he's got a, an Arabic flavor to his name, uh, Ibn, in verse, in verses Bain, Ezra. And he, he wrote, uh, women were created for the purpose of producing children, but if a woman puts on a uniform and goes out with the men to war, she will end up acting promiscuously. And so, and uh, he also saw that cross-dressing men would try to do the same thing going into an environment where um, women were primarily. So that's one of those aspects where you have the the wartime aspect of this. Now, remember, this is in the general theme of what? Kind of golden rule-related items, about loyalty-related items, not trying to get into relationships or get in between relationships that you don't belong in, blowing up um, the way that people relate to each other. And this situation, whether it's the women doing it or the men doing it, is blowing up relationships and causing all kinds of havoc. Now, you might as well could have written this today because this is doing exactly that. You know, I mean, you look at especially what has happened with women's sports. I mean, women's sports is in crisis right now. You've had, thankfully, there's been a number of um, professional associations, one after another, that are just starting to say, all right, enough of this and pushing back on this. And a lot of them were really squishy on this. I mean, the reason, why, the reason why we have women's sports to begin with was a thing is like, hey, women can do extremely well. They can excel at things, but within their own class as um, a, a, um, a top collegiate swimmer was testifying before Congress is like, hey, I'm at the top of my game in, in collegiate athletics. I'm a top ranks. I've got all kinds of medals and stuff. My husband can beat me in the pool. And he's like not even barely ranked on any sort of thing. But see that in the class, she is fantastic. I mean, like Olympic level swimmer, but not against a man because of what? Height, muscle, air, and lung capacity, and on and on. She, she went and she listed a whole long list of physiological things that are hugely important for a swimmer that are just different between men and women. And we're like, we're trying to champion the great things that women can do you know, when they put themselves to the task against each other. But then you're like throwing a wrench in by saying, hey, Someone wants to come in and 
throw a wrench into this relationship amongst these women to be able to compete and and uh, excel against each other. So quite a challenging thing that people are having to face up to. Are we going to allow this to continue on? Or are you going to say, hey, look, we're trying to champion the unique differences between men and women by having women's divisions of stuff. So just going on further, um, and kind of a, a good, what is it, late, late 1800s, early 1900s commentary called the uh, Kyle and Deitlich uh, commentary, which is kind of a, it's a combination of a commentary and a lexicon together on this particular passage. And he said, uh, the immediate design of this prohibition, talking about Deuteronomy 22.5, was not to prevent licentiousness. So obviously now taking, <laughs> taking exception to what the common uh, Jewish um, commentator view is, or to oppose idolatrous practices, but to maintain the sanctity of that distinction of the sexes which was established by the creation of man and woman, and in relation to which Israel was not, was not to sin. Every violation or wiping out of this distinction, such as uh, such even, for example, as the emancipation of a woman was unnatural and therefore an abomination in the sight of God. Now, of course, this is within historical context because remember, as we've talked about in times past, in the time period that this was written, emancipated women were doomed women because there were very limited opportunities for them to support themselves they would go into beggary or prostitution if you were to just to kick them out on their own so it was a destitute thing to emancipate a woman so that is why you're when you read these passages and they talk about divorce and it's like you know you can't just send her off just because you don't like her no and you see that when you go through the Sermon on the Mount, Yeshua hammers that home even more as in these passages that you see there. It's like, you know, except for sexual immorality, you just have to realize you can break this, but you're not getting an easy out because of it. I mean, you are just specifically breaking this relationship. So it is, it is quite interesting that you see this, this take well, is it dealing with uh, the desire for licentiousness? You have to say yes, because this was written before the modern era and what we're seeing just in the past few years. What we see in the past few years and pretty much every day or every week now, those commentators, the Jewish commentators were correct. That is a disease within the human heart that you have to worry about if you are not trying to keep things distinct. Now, here is a more modern version of this, but still it was written a couple decades ago. The Holman Bible commentary on this passage, the prohibitions against cross-dressing are not pointed at masquerade parties, but at a larger issue, the loss of male and female roles in a healthy society. Israelites were to respect God's design and not call their assigned sexuality into, qu into question by wearing inappropriate clothing. 
Moses knew that behavior provokes values just as values promote behavior. The Lord detests such behavior because it places a fog around distinctions that he constructed. God is against anything that blurs the lines between the sexes. In the same way, Israel must recognize that even in the animal world, the continuation of life depends on respect for motherhood. Even in such mundane matter as the bird's nest beside the road, the life of the mother must be preserved to continue life in the next generation. Israel's future uh, prosperity and even their longevity depended upon their respect for life. This should start getting some bells ringing in your heads here. Number one, there is also, at the same time, and you know, there, there have been some scholars that have done a lot of work at this, that this, the issues related to gender is grown right out of a lot of efforts to say, um, as was said by a um, feminist a long time ago, you know, a man or a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. And it's kind of taken and metastasized and gone in different directions that maybe some of the original backers did not intend. But one of the challenges that you're having now is family formation. People aren't getting married. I mean, it's getting so bad just in the past few years with this pandemic of just forcing people and say, hey, go, go, go home, stay in your house, and don't come out for two or three years to the point where people are just eschewing personal relationships at all. Kids coming back into the classroom, having trouble interacting with each other without a screen or something like that. It's just people don't even know how to have friendships anymore. People go into war with each other in the grocery store, on planes and everywhere else because they just have forgotten what it means to interact with people face-to-face. So you're just blowing up relationships right and left with this. And here in the sense of the case where you're having with family formation, motherhood is, has been under attack. Now, they're trying, you can see in some quarters to try to claw back at that. You know, for example, I just saw in the past week, there were some stories about Women are now gravitating towards jobs that offer what they call fertility benefits, meaning paid maternity leave, uh, paid parental leave, et cetera, et cetera. But the issue then comes about is still separation of parents and children over time. In fact, one of the things that I just saw in the Wall Street Journal was went on and on about this in just this past week is... There is an effort to try to, quote, get the uh, women participation in the workplace up in India. But it's a big, big problem because in India, the idea of women going, just leaving the home and going to work is culturally anathema because, you know, it's like the primary, the primary task for women is for the raising of children, hugely, hugely important. But the one thing that they're having to do is, and they, they talked about these HR people and going through with women to, who want to go into the workplace about how to then 
convince their families and their, and their parents and even their communities to say, hey, let me do this. You know, I want to do this. I want to go off. So that is what you would say a challenge because with communities that have a very strong family relationship are frankly the the societies that are kicking are kicking everybody's backsides when it comes to education and um you could say intellectual achievement because where are two places that are really kicking it right now korea and in general japan and some of the other asian countries around that and india two things that they have strong families strong ethic for education and those two go very very closely together so what you have an effort in is to say you're going to try to go in and blow something up in the midst of that i mean that that is that is fine you know if you want to say hey it should be okay for women if they want to go pursue a career but then you've seen what has happened in our country when that has happened that's from i want to go to be able to do this to looking down on women who want to stay at home and focus on their children as their main task to to be that great launching pad for the entire society so that was a valiant effort at the beginning but just like with the french revolution be careful what you start i'm not saying that this is the effort is like going to end with guillotines no don't get me wrong on that but it's just be careful what it is that you start because you may not see what the end result is you know for those that say hey going to get a career that's fantastic but so is being a mother and also raising kids that are stable you know determined hard-working incredible um achievers in society as well uh yes rose don't, don't you think before uh, world war ii that our country was a lot like that i mean uh women were mostly in the home uh when world war ii broke out women were forced to go to the work field because yes. all the men were in the war field yes and that, that that's a that's a so very that caused a, a revolution in uh in womanhood uh because they they went out and whoa man i can make money i can i have money in my own pocket i can do what i want to do yeah and it just caused a whole upset in, right. in our society uh, but, it was never you know, the same after world war ii yeah but if you, you also have to say that that had been started a couple of decades before because um the women's suffrage movement was when was that late 1800s so it was like over those few decades before um that effort was was gaining steam so you know like when people talk about a major shift in culture like we had with the uh, covid related lockdowns that shifted a whole lot of things in our societies both here in the united states and across the world extremely fast to change things and break relationships etc very very quickly now world war ii that was a point of necessity you just had to have somebody working in the factories and so the women stepped up 
but then again when you when you look at this this was a mobilization of all society i mean people with the victory gardens and you know switching off of your your uh your nylons and stuff for the parachutes it was this whole effort of everybody pitching in to say hey we we got to get this thing done so this was accomplished to say hey we're going to go to the factories get the stuff made and you know you say and the women just kicked it they did whether you're talking about one factory or another they got her done when you're talking about those uh from submarines to you know those um bomber factories the fighter factories i mean they were just they were there making the stuff the electronics the avionics etc they just really kicked it so you're not saying it's like not capable of doing it but it's like that was an extremely grievous effort that is like when you have also those cases where you have someone attacking your homeland what do you do i mean you see it in society after society after society whether you're talking about in israel where you had you know in after the uh, 47 where you had the de- declaration of independence in 48 you had units of women that were popping up there in israel and were were kicking it but then again you also had a false multiplier a force multiplier called firearms which made the situation quite a bit different and so women could per- just uh, participate in combat on a level equivalent of men now it's a quite a bit different thing when you start getting into ancient warfare with um yeah swords and shields and that kind of thing um yes uh tammy you have a comment or a question over there oh and pamela's got her hand up yeah i just wanted to say i was just looking at uh ancestry.com and i rose's thing brought this to mind a little bit i actually have a copy of my great-grandmother's job application for employment to the Northern Pacific Railroad Company. She applied for a job as a stenographer in 1909. Mm-hmm. So women were already in the workforce yep. before the 1940s. In the 1940s, the motto was Rosie the River. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Rose said that, that was her nickname when she was a kid. Uh, yes, Alex, go ahead, yeah, please. All those seeds were there, as you said. Margaret Sanger suffered, you know, communism. It was all there. But World War II kind of broke up the taboos because we were simple, uh, probably uh, living our European heritage for the most part as farmers. Factories were big, but um, World War II blew it up. So, yeah. It, it reformed after that. Yes. There was electrical, but then suddenly there was electronics with radar, sonar. Yeah. So and it's, it, it was amazing. It's, to this day, it was just incredible. Yeah, and it's, it's really important that when you do face these revolutions of either technology or some social revolution or something that comes along, what do you do as a society? And we, we study this every time we go through the Torah. And as we come into the last few chapters of Deuteronomy, it's talking about that time off in the future that is foretelling and prophesying about the exiles of Israel. That was a huge cultural shift that would happen. I mean, just think about it. Your normal rhythm. You know, we've, we've grown up in the diaspora 
you know, without the temple in operation. So we're, we're used to that. Imagine being in a society where everything is around a functional temple and the cycles that go with visiting the temple and all of its operations. Well, imagine that is wiped away and, and you're now hauled off into a different country. And depending on your host country, it could be pretty bad for you to even practice your, you know, your beliefs in the country that you're hauled off to. That's a big cultural shift. So when these cultural shifts come in, what do you do as a response to it? For example, in this passage we're looking here, Deuteronomy 22.5, it's been there for 3,500 years. So when we come into this situation that we're going in now, I mean, it has been there all this time. It's no surprise to anybody, no surprise to anybody within the people who um, believe in the Bible or say they believe in the Bible or have read that kind of thing. So that has been there. So question is, is that when these shifts happen in society, how then do we approach it when you, you see these things coming on? Yes, Carrie, you've got your hand up there. I was just going to say, um, I think one answer, if not a big one, is we need to make sure our empathy and our curiosity are on. Yes. Um, you know, because talking about, um, you know, even the women, you know, going more into the workforce for World War II, um, something that a lot of people don't know is that their child care was funded by the government. So the children were being taken care of. The women's labor was actually seen. It wasn't invisible, which generally speaking, in all of our generations, women's labor tends to be unseen and fairly invisible. It's not valued at the same way as men's jobs a lot of times. And very, very um, specifically in our modern culture of the last 40 or 50 years. So when we're talking about these um, shifts and things like that, and even the cross-dressing in the women's sports, you know, it's women, you know, we have women's sports because partly because generally speaking, they're not going to be able to compete at the same level as a lot of men. Um, but the other thing is, is that a lot of times women aren't allowed to do things because everybody thinks that only men want to do them or it's just something that's relegated to men and women are relegated to you know, being in the house and motherhood and things, even if they don't want to be. So the reality is, is that motherhood has been under attack basically since the curses were given in a lot of different ways. And just because we have women wanting to go into the workforce, even when they have children, that in itself is not an attack on motherhood. The attack on motherhood is women being relegated to things and not being given the choices that they need. Um, but even with the cross-dressing, the thing that was kind of um, hitting me is that, at least in my experience growing up in church, um, it can be really easy and sometimes convenient to just look at scriptures like this that are just given automatic, you know, yes or no, um, and just look at what other people are doing and be like, oh, their life is full of sin because they're doing this one thing. But I think the reality is, is that if we take it deeper and we make sure our empathy and our curiosity are on, 
then the question at the very least needs to be, why would somebody even want to do that? What are the benefits that they think they're even going to get from it? Because behavior is a symptom of something deeper. It, it always is. And, you know, just pointing fingers at things people are doing wrong, that's really not going to take care of the problem. You know, what we need to do is we need to be asking, okay, God, you know, what's causing these people to behave in these ways that, you know, seem fairly unnatural. I mean, at least in my opinion, you know, what is it? What's, what's causing the pain? What's, you know, where, where is this coming from? And when we can ask those questions and we can love people, even where they're at, you know, that I think is where we can show his love better and make a bigger difference with, you know, with culture. And even when we have bigger cultural shifts, you know, it's not necessarily condoning the behavior. It's just accepting people where they're at and seeing, you know, where can we get in and bring his love to affect change in a positive way. Yeah, indeed. Because uh, you, you brought up the place that we're going to be heading into next. And that is the aspect of, you know, why it is that someone would want to be moving in this direction. Now, if you look at the context of this passage that we're looking at in Deuteronomy 32.5, it is in between someone who their donkey or their ox have gone off into. Oh, and and Marie, please, but before we go on any further, please go ahead. Hi, everyone. Yeah, I just had a couple of thoughts. First, um, considering the position of women in work and thinking back to uh, the woman of noble character in Proverbs 31, um, she really had it going on. She was managing her household and her servants, and she had her own business and was praised by the elders and by her husband and earned her own money and considered her own field and bought it with her own earnings. She yes. was quite the businesswoman. And um, I think it's important to remember that it is biblical for women to be business women yep. and to be out there earning their own money and making their own financial decisions and building their own wealth. Um, and then I think the other thing that well, you know, and, and, and Marie, if you could uh, just just on that one point, it, I think it's really in, important yeah. to to note is that <laughs> when you look at a lot of families, who is usually the more responsible bookkeeper of the family and financial manager of the family? Yeah, it's usually the wife is the the better one, and. Um, why is that? I don't know. I would hope it's because she was the one that was better at it. <laughs> it actually goes into that strange little uh, passage that is just after this one that we're looking at Deuteronomy 32, 5, and 6 and 7, about the strange one about the bird and the nest and the chicks and if you find it on the ground or in the tree but that's a different matter um i just wanted to note that one first uh Anne marie if you could just uh, go on with your with your um other points there oh just another thought that came to mind as i'm thinking um about paul and how he's saying um that 
in some ways it's more honorable to be single because your focus is primarily on God rather than on your spouse. And um, it, it seems that uh, there's quite a bit of emphasis on uh, marriages being the better position, but I'm not sure ultimately um, that that's what I'm getting from the scripture. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, and, and basically you've got um, those two incredible things that are in, in tension, and you think, well, are they completely contradictory? One of which is, you know, man and woman being together and then having kids. That's the only way that society will survive. And you can see what happens in a lot of societies today that are eschewing that and saying putting that into a secondary position. However, just as you noted from what the Apostle Paul was saying, if you need the getter done and the things, the stuff that you need to have done in society, those who are single can really, can really get it done quickly and with single-minded focus, whether you're talking about entrepreneurs in business or you know, someone that's involved in ministry or whatever, you need to get it done. But, so it's like you've got those two, two sort of tensions. You absolutely need families because if you don't, society will just blow up. But then you've got these people that can just run full out with no sort of other demands upon them to get things done. And you're like, so, well, which is it? And it's, yes, you need those people who have the single-minded focus. But you can't all have everybody like that. Otherwise, society just blows up. But if you have everybody who's in sort of a family and has that as the total focus, well then, for those things that really need the determined focus of 100%, it's kind of like when you, when you see like in, in engineering schools, you know, when, when, I was, when I was going to college, I had some friends who were engineers and I hardly ever saw them. If I didn't go over to the engineering building and visit them, I'd never see them because they were in there all the time. In fact, they had cots in their labs. They would just sleep underneath their bench where they were working on their projects. And when you, whether you're talking about Silicon Valley or other places like that, I mean, these people are just going full out all the time. And you need that kind of dedication to get things done. But you also need the families to in a sense, really get things done because if you don't have the families, it's, it's over. And you're seeing that crisis going on here in modern society right now with the idea of families being sort of a secondary thought. So yes, Anne-Marie, you're really noting those two sorts of tensions. And for those, like what the Apostle Paul is saying, you know, for those who are, have this calling, go for it. But for those who have the other calling, go for it. Uh, yes, Tammy. Now, when you have, when you, whether you have people that are in families or when you have people who are single, if they actually are going about it with an attitude of service, they can achieve great things. But if you have people who are single, but they are single-minded, not about serving others, like entrepreneurs, you know, they're not, whether they're trying to build the latest mousetrap or whatever, they're looking at something to serve the community. 
to serve others. But if you are a single person, but you're just about serving yourself, that I think is a symptom that this, a lot of this cross-dressing transgender stuff, I think a lot of it is that people are so looking into themselves and only thinking about themselves and analyzing themselves that they lose focus of the fact that God has given them a body, their hands, their feet, their everything else, not to be of service to self, but as a way to be of service to others. And it's our job to figure out in what way we best be of service to others, whether that's to be in a committed relationship and have a family, or whether that is maybe to be single and be in some sort of ministry or entrepreneurial um, output. But you have to have that. And like you were saying earlier about the pandemic exacerbating this navel-gazing. Yeah, the isolation also. And the isolation and the navel-gazing. And if you're isolated and alone, you don't know how you fit in with other people. And so experiences, whether it's puberty or menopause or any other experience where you might need others' help to help you understand what you're going through and why, you're isolated from that. And you may end up finding the wrong solutions to what you are experiencing. Yeah. And, and plus, like what Anne-Marie was talking about, um, uh, not Anne-Marie, uh, sorry, Carrie what was talking about the underlying sort of pain involved. Because one of the things you, you see um, people who are really working with, with teens that are uh, struggling with identity issues is um, that and why it seems to be clustered in girls a lot is about the ideas of, um, frankly, men haven't learned to be men. And the idea of how men treat women has gone off of a cliff. Men have not learned from their fathers about what it means to be a man and how men treat women. So a lot of men have treated women just terribly and treated girls just terribly. So, and then you, um, you combine that with a proliferation of licentiousness to where you are seeing the desires of men turning their eyes toward younger and younger women to girls and now you can also see the kind of um, pain and fear that comes through with girls in particular when they're approaching and going through puberty. So that's also noted as a, a big concern. So you got a whole lot of things that are flowing into the incredible crisis that we, we face here. And just uh, Pamela, well, uh, if you could uh, just note your comment or question and we'll close it out with one last thought there on uh verses six and seven of deuteronomy 22 so go ahead pamela well, my thing is that there's a, also this movement of using different pronouns rather than the assigned gender of a person yeah have you noticed yeah and indeed indeed people are are looking for identities so that goes to what Anne-Marie and, and Carrie have been talking about, of really trying to find out why it is that people are looking for these identities. I remember I went through a 
I went through a time, it was uh, one summer where I wanted to be called Squirrel because I like squirrels and squirrels were a thing. So I insisted that everybody at the summer camp that I went to called me Squirrel. Then that was also followed by the puberty time where I insisted that people call me Psycho, which was not, that was not a, a good, good time period. It seemed like a good idea at the time. Uh, so, yeah, that's... Uh, yeah, so what I mean by pronouns is like he or she and... and exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they're confusing the genders. Yes, and it, it goes into a lot of the, the, the struggles with identity that we've been talking about. But one of the... I'll just close things out here with the, the last thought on that passage there in verses 6 and 7 of Deuteronomy 22, talking about this strange picture that's saying, hey, you know, if you come across a, a, um, a nest, either it's in a tree or on the ground, and you don't take the mother with the young. And that is, as we see, if you go into one of the later chapters of the same passage, you might have seen a passage you've seen before in Paul's writings, don't muzzle the ox as it treads out the grain. And he says, is this talking about livestock? I mean, yes, but it's actually much more than that. And he's using it in the sense of, hey, a worker in the, in the family of God, you know, they can also eat from what they're doing as well, just like the ox is going to eat from some of the grain that it's, it's treading out. So then someone who's working in the family of God can also um, get some sustenance from the workings of what they're doing. So what you're seeing is a picture that every one of these little things in here also could be standing in for something else. And as you, you probably have seen, a lot of people have drawn their attention to it because Maimonides uh, noted in that particular passage, and he's saying, well, likewise with the, mock, the ox and the muzzle, this is not just talking about birds. This is talking about the situation as to what, uh, what you have with um, mothers. This is really about mothers and uh, protecting mothers and children. But some people have also noticed that this, just like with a lot of the other uh, things related to the firstborn of your unloved wife and then the loved wife, what does that sound like? Uh, you know, Rachel and Leah, that's all what that's about. And interestingly enough, there's a lot of parallels both linguistically and thematically, with this idea of the bird and her chicks, and also with Yaakov and Esau. Because specifically, one of the things that Yaakov is praying for right before he meets Esau, remember he's coming back after he's been gone for (laughs) two decades, after the whole uh, switcheroo with the stew, and got the birthright, from his older brother. Well, one of the things that it mentions here, and he's praying about, hey, Esau is coming, and he may come upon the mothers on their children. And a lot of people have noticed that, well, 
what is the difference between the situation of mothers traveling with children here now approaching Esau with 400 armed men? Okay, what do you think those armed men, if they were intent on doing something, are going to do to to Yaakov's progeny? They're going to go after him. And who is going to be in the way between the armed men and the children? The mothers are going to be over their children. Just like what you know, you've seen in catastrophes where you have mothers covering their children, going down with it. They will not leave their children, which is why when we get down into the prophecies related to the destruction of Yerushalayim, that's one of the things that's really kind of shocking in there about how it says that the mothers will just, they'll, they'll lose their whole, as we call it, maternal instinct, their maternal um, protection, and they'll actually go after their own. Well, that's, that's just awful. The normal thing is, is that a mother would protect the children. So thus, if you were to try to catch a bird, where would you get her when she's trying to protect her children? So that's what you're trying to go after, just like Esau trying to go after the progeny. He would go after them as they're, and get all of them when they are protecting their children. So thus, one of the great lessons that you're saying here, well, what on earth does this have to do with anything else in this, in this passage here we're, we're looking at? Well, if this is in the general idea of golden rule, do unto others as you want them have to do unto you, well, think about within a family. If you are... Basically, uh, another little subtext of it with the um, Yaakov and Esau story is goes back to the uh, Yitzhak and the whole deception that happened. What did Yaakov do to his father in getting the birthright? Deceived him. But he also preyed upon his what for his oldest son? The heritage, but the love, the devotion he had to his son. Played upon that. So one of the lessons that comes down is, is that within, when you are a, quote, hunter, going about your normal things and life, don't prey upon people when you know that they are not going to retreat, just like with a mother with her children is not going to retreat. So thus, when you are faced into a, a situation, even today, one of the most horrific things is when you have some sort of assailant and they will not relent from going after a mother against her children. And you'll see that that happens far too often is where you know a mother will take a bullet, take a knife, whatever, for her children to protect her children. And the assailant is just like, my goodness, I, what am I doing here? I am injuring, even killing, a mother who is protecting her children. 
I mean, they should have like gone in your face and said no and relented. You see, what should have happened with Esau, because a number of people have noted that there was those messengers that came to Yaakov at night, and he said, hey, this is the camp of the Lord. Then Yaakov sent messengers to Esau. And then you see he also sent gifts and sent his, his blessings. What he had been blessed with, he sent ahead of him to his brother. So it's like, well, maybe the messengers that he sent didn't seem to get the message across. But then you started seeing the gifts that he was sending ahead of him. And then finally he himself came and he bowed down to his brother. And his brother's asking, well, who are these? And instead of just completely lying or trying to obfuscate, he said, no, these are the children I have been blessed with. So thus, when we, when we close this out, we see that this particular passage that we're looking at is not just talking about strange things that happened you know, long ago, talking about people um, hunting for birds or whatnot. We see that, no, rather, these are things that deal with the most intense relationships that we have in life. And also think about us as children, if we still have our parents around, to be careful with how we behave. Are we trying to basically take advantage of our parents by using their love for their children, just like a mother bird will die and get flustered trying to do whatever she can to protect her young are we doing that to our own parents who would just love us, love us, love us, and not want to let go of us? And we see also that the Lord does the same thing to us with Israel, just will not let Israel go. No matter how much Israel just, just sticks the knife in and twists it again and again and again. But no, the Lord says, no, I will buy you back, win you back, take you back from your, your diaspora, your scattering, win you back, take you home. And like Yeshua was saying over Jerusalem, hey, I've wanted to gather you together like a hen hovers over her chicks. But no, you just didn't want that. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.